Hello, and welcome to the Better Strangers podcast for Friday, April 28th. My name is Matt Hirschberger. Uh, I am the writer, publisher, host of Better Strangers. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the Situationists. Um, I'd mentioned them in a popular TikTok I did a few weeks ago about... Um, uh, psychogeography and kind of the art of wandering, and I'll get into that a little bit later, but I mentioned kind of offhand in that video the Situationists themselves, and they were an incredibly interesting group that have their fingerprints like in virtually everything that's happened since, and so I thought I'd kind of go a little bit through their history and a little bit what their ideas were. So I'm going to name a bunch of books while I talk about this, uh, and I'll try, you know, I, I haven't found a single good place to get all of this. I've had a few people ask me like, you know, if there's one book that they can get to read about this. Unfortunately, um, it's covered by a lot of people kind of tangential to other things, but um, I haven't found one really great book that covers it. Um, The one that might be a good one to start with is Grail Marcus's uh, Lipstick Traces, which talks about how early 20th century artistic movements like Dadaism uh, led to things like Situationism, which led to things like punk rock. Um, he's, he's a music writer specifically, but uh, if you're not familiar with Dada, it was a kind of anti-capitalist, almost anti-art, uh, movement that came out post-World War One that rejected kind of like the logic of modern society as being the thing that dragged us into the, like, you know, the hyper-violence of World War One. Uh, it was very much, uh, a leftist movement, um, and it had kind of an, it embraced things like, you know, like chaos and irrationality as being, you know, um, better than rationality if rationality led to stuff like World War One. Uh, so it, it's a really great that, that it's a great book to like kind of describe that early part of that movement. Um, and the Dadaists are incredible. They were just very, very strange and out there. Uh, but they influenced a lot of people later on, including the Situationists. So the Situationists could be considered as kind of like um, a the same version of the same sort of like ideas after World War II. Um, it was, uh, you know, set in France mostly. Um, it was, it came from a lot of people who were, who were Marxists pretty far left, but they tended to be artists. Like they were interested in how art could push back against capitalism and, and things like that. And so like an early, you know, um, situationist uh, went into the Notre Dame Cathedral dressed as a monk and pronounced that God was dead. Like that was the type of act that they would engage in. Um, but uh, the situations themselves kind of came at and, and slowly morphed into something a little bit more than just an artistic movement and later became a bit of a political movement. So to, to understand the basis of their ideas, I do need to talk about Karl Marx a little bit. Um, if you haven't read Karl Marx, I'm going to make this as brief and painless as possible, Uh, but basically the Situationists were a libertarian Marxist organization, which meant that they were opposed to the Soviet-style Marxism that was in place in Russia and instead wanted a little bit more of like an um, anarcho-communist future. Uh, They were never directly aligned with the anarchists and they were at odds with the Marxists. One of the problems that the Situationists had was they kept expelling people from their group. Their uh, leader and kind of main theorist, Guy Debord, uh, expelled so many people that eventually it was just him left and he he actually ended up uh, killing himself um, in the the 90s. But they were really – interested in specifically how capitalism, especially like late advanced capitalism, had come to take over every aspect of our lives. And Karl Marx talked about this in, in his writings, and he, he talked about um, what he referred to as, um, as alienation. 
And it's basically because of capitalism, we end up getting alienated from our labor. So like, you know, you're doing one part of the job. You never actually see the final product. You don't actually um, have any sort of emotional connection to the thing you're building. And you also aren't getting any of the benefits from the sale of that thing. Like you're just getting kind of like your wage. Um, Before capitalism, that wasn't the case. If you were building a hammer, you would be that you would go get the material, you would craft the hammer, and when you finished it, it would be your hammer that you would then sell. And capitalism kind of took all of the parts out of that. You weren't a hammer maker, you were the person who made, like, you know, the the handle of the hammer. and Or, you know, you also, it wasn't your hammer at the end of it. It had been removed from you. So this theory of alienation basically, eventually, Marx said, led to the working class just being kind of like not even the owners of their own lives. And this is something that Marxists and leftists have seized on for a very long time since then. So what the situationists kind of added to this was talking about how in later capitalism, which Marx didn't live to see, um, a lot of the alienation had extended to just every single part of our lives where we'd reached a point where products and like commodities were more valuable than human life itself. So psychogeography is actually a really good example of this. Because of the way that capitalism works, we no longer have spaces in our towns that were like, it's, our towns aren't built for us. They are built for capital. So you have a couple places that you occupy. You live in your home, which is the place that you sleep and you consume things. You can go to a store, which is a place you buy things, and then you can go to work, which is a place where you're producing value for you know shareholders and stuff like that. And so those three places are the only place that capitalism really wants you to spend any time. The rest of the city isn't built for your enjoyment or for you having a fulfilling or happy life. It's all about these kind of like economic drivers, and it, it really kind of flattens the experience of human life into just sort of like, you know, numbers and, and money. And so... Psychogeography was an attempt to kind of jolt ourselves out of that by walking through cities kind of intentionally. Uh, Psychogeography, by the way, we had people on the uh, TikTok who were like, it's just walking. Psychogeography is not walking. Psychogeography is the interaction that your, your kind of mind has with the places that you live in. I had a different thing that I posted, which was Alan Moore, uh, the comic writer, talking about how, you know, if the buildings around you start to feel like a rat trap, you might assume you're a rat. Whereas if the buildings around you have some sort of like magic and wonder to them, you can believe that you are like a character in like an epic story. And so, you know, it's about like kind of reorienting your sense of self away from you being kind of in this prison towards you being an active part of your environment and something that actually grew out of there and that is of that place. And so psychogeography is kind of that interaction between your brain and your setting. Um, But uh, the tactic they used a lot was called the, and I'm sorry, my French is probably awful, but it's the derive, which is just basically just means to drift. And so they talked about just kind of wandering around a city, picking random rules, and hopefully in doing that, you would discover something new or you would meet new people or you would get into a situation that jolted you outside of just kind of like, you know, I'm the consumer, you're the seller. Like, you know, these these typical interactions that we had in most of our days and instead bring you back to like an actual human interaction with other people and with the place that you live in. So psychogeography was what the situationists were really 
early on known for. But then in the mid to late 60s, they became known for developing this concept called the spectacle. And so kind of the main situationist, Guy Debord, uh, wrote a book called The Society of the Spectacle, which is in a lot of ways kind of a prediction of what social media would become. Um, the spectacle is basically talking about how every aspect of our lives has now become about – it's about capitalism. It's not about like how we live our lives and how we like you know live fulfilling happy lives. It's about – how we interact with products and how we kind of like even now we start to think of ourselves as products. When you talk about like a concept like branding, um, you know, it, it's right there in the word. Branding is a thing that they used to do to animal. Well, I think they still do it to animals, uh, but animals and they also did it to people as a way of marking property. So when you're branding yourself, you're basically declaring I am a property that can be bought and sold. Um, a lot of influencer culture is really is is really very much in this line where you become kind of you know famous for whatever it is you're you know putting out there onto the internet and then you leverage that into basically selling yourself to corporations to like you know sell products and to do like you know um, paid sponsorships and and things like that so you know it really very much predicted just how much of our basic day-to-day social interactions would become dictated by basically like capitalist, you know, impulses. So think about Facebook, for example, the the thing that Facebook did is it took what used to just be a normal social interaction between you and your friends or you and your family members. And because those interactions were now having happening on Facebook, Facebook could do things to try and, alter the interaction to make you pay more attention to them so that they could serve you more advertisements. So we know, for example, that Facebook was more than happy to promote false fake news. We know that they uh, that most algorithms go for engagement, whether it's good or bad. So stuff that's really controversial or negative um, tends to get inflated in social media algorithms. And that has been part of the reason that we've had the return of far-right, you know, fascist politics has been because those are controversial, and controversial things do well on the algorithms. So that is because, and it's, you know, that what Facebook didn't set out to bring back fascism, but what it was trying to do was it was trying to make money off of a part of our lives that used to be just our own. It used to just be social interactions between a few different people. And now that became public for everything, for everyone, and it became a product that they sold. They're, you know, that that's not something that had ever happened before. And so the spectacle, the argument in the society of the spectacle is that Capitalism will continue to worm its way into every single part of our lives until every sort of interaction, everything we're doing, has either a cost or a value. And that's really troubling if you want to live your own life and not just be kind of like the tool for for someone making a ton of money. Now, the the influence of the book, The Society of the the Spectacle, was huge. Uh, It came out in 1967, and in 1968 there was a massive uprising in Paris, um, nearly toppled uh, the president, uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, he actually ended up fleeing the country. Uh, he ended up being able to reexert his power eventually, but 
1968 was basically a year of protests around the world, and one of the most influential of them was the 68 Paris Uprising. And so uh, there's actually a great book called 68, or it might just be 1968, by a guy named Mark Kurlansky, where he goes through um, the Prague Spring and, you know, uh, uprisings in, throughout Europe and, um, and Asia and, like, the rest of the world in that year. And it's a, it's a really, really cool book kind of talking about you know, one of these eras where there's like a spurt of activism and a lot of, you know, a lot of discontent. Um, but anyway, this, this Paris uprising, they used a lot of the, uh, the situationist ideas as in, in kind of their slogans as um, graffiti that they painted on the walls all around Paris. And this was also kind of part of something else that the situationists had pushed, uh, which was called the détournement. Now, I'm sorry, again, if that's bad French. Uh, the détournement is a predecessor to modern street art and kind of like ad busting and things like that, where basically uh, we've reached a point where capitalism and, and all, you know, billboards and signs and, you know, flyers and everything are interfaces all the time trying to sell us something. And the situationists argue, well, they're doing that without your consent. So since they're doing that without your consent, you have a right to alter the content of what's on that billboard or what's on that wall um, and make it into something revolutionary. So, you know, there's a very popular, uh, there was, it was more popular in the nineties, but there was a, a magazine called ad busters, which basically took advertisements and through kind of like, you know, putting different things on them, kind of like subverted the message. So, you know, there's a guy on Instagram who does this, his, this great, uh, he does a ton of ad busting and he did like, you know, for shell oil, um, outside gas stations, he paints like fire on top of the shell shell and then paints out the S. So it just says hell, uh, to kind of, you know, as a commentary on, on what the oil companies are, are doing to, to the planet. And so that's like an instance of ad busting. And that was kind of rose out of this 1968 uh, uprising. And so, you know, when you think of a lot of the street art that came out of the 80s and the 90s, you think of, you know, later things like Banksy, who himself kind of eventually turned into a product too. Um, but where, you know, you have kind of basically taking public spaces and doing art on them as a way of totally changing the message of them. A lot of that came out of situationist ideas. The other thing that really came out of the situationist ideas in 1968 was punk rock. Um, so the, the founder of the Sex Pistols, uh, Malcolm McLaren, who was kind of the manager, he got a lot of his ideas up from the situationists. And a lot of his ideas were about how you would do something shocking as a way of kind of like jolting people awake. And so, so much of that early punk rock movement was about being as kind of as appalling as possible, you know, by having like the, you know, scary looking hair and pierced noses and like screaming and puking on stage and like, you know, all of the crazy stuff that the Sex Pistols were known for. And then also having very, very subversive art, like, you know, God Save the Queen, you know, that that's, you know, obviously a very famous piece of work. It is also kind of a violation of, of you know, what the British state thinks about its monarch. Um, so punk rock was very much inspired by, by ideas coming out of the Situationist movement as well. So what's the impact of the Situationists today? So an interesting thing that they talked about was that whenever you had sort of a, re a revolutionary idea in mass, uh, mass culture, um, if mass culture couldn't totally pound it 
down and, and, you know, get rid of it. What they would do is they would find a way to bring it kind of inside themselves and commodify it and make it part of capitalism. So this is why you see a lot of things that used to be kind of like revolutionary, particularly in feminism, where you're now seeing brands adopt feminism as, as sort of like a, a, you know, like girl boss, like, you know, like, yes, she can type type stuff as a way of promoting a product. And, you know, feminism has always been, you know, radical at its roots because it rejects kind of the premise of, of this, this in our entire society right now with, with its, with its patriarchy and it's, you know, kind of the way that it's set up. Um, but it's been folded into kind of like these corporate and kind of, and kind of neutered by a lot of these corporate interests. Um, you're also seeing that a lot of that stuff, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to like criticize like, you know, Bud Light doing like a rainbow thing and getting all of the, you know, the fascists pissed off is kind of fun to watch, but it's also still like, you know, a corporation which kind of supports a, a fairly oppressive status quo trying to hitch its wagon onto what has been historically a, a very radical and very progressive movement. We can also see that the situationists were right. Uh, also, Marx was right about how capitalism would worm its way into more and more parts of our lives. You know, you take, for instance, now when it comes to your health care, you are more of a product than a person that is being cared for. In the eyes, not I'm not saying that for doctors or nurses. I know that plenty of them are, you know, doing their best. But like, you know, for insurance companies, you are basically something that they can kind of take money out of as you go through an illness. Um, this happens kind of in every corner of our lives now. We, you know, you take something like childcare, which used to be done by a community. It's now something that's commodified. You know, like during the pandemic, me and my wife had to spend $2,000 a month uh, for childcare, uh, you know, which is, you know, uh, actually pretty cheap for two kids. And, you know, that sort of thing used to just be a thing that our community did for free, but our communities have been picked apart and more and more of the functions that we just, you know, used to just be us taking care of each other have become things that you have to purchase and the way that you purchase them is by working for someone and making money for them and, you know, getting a small cut of it back yourself. And so that's kind of, you know, that's, they, they've really been proven right on, uh, they, you know, they, they fizzled out long before social media existed, but, um, you know, I, I imagine that the situationists would have been very smug about just how correct they were about how social media took experiences that should have been, you know, you know, in the past, if you weren't traveling, you were traveling for the purpose of enjoying another culture and being with other people or learning something or whatever. And now a large part of it has to do with building an image and putting those images onto social media. And then in doing that, you may get to a point where people will pay you to do that, but you're definitely making money for like Instagram by posting all of your cool travel pics. So these parts of our lives have just become more and more kind of like incorporated into capitalism. And so what the situationists have to kind of say to us today is that a lot of the ways that we can start to change things into, you know, they called it the revolution of everyday life, where you look at the things in your day to day and you try and find a way of breaking out of them. 
the psychogeography and wandering in, you know, intentionally and just seeing things and finding things is a good example of that. So is graffiti and taking an advertisement that, you know, most people wouldn't think twice at seeing and doing something on it to, uh, you know, to make people see something else. Like, you know, even something as simple as drawing a mustache on a, on, on a billboard or whatever is, is, considered kind of a detournement, like a, a kind of a revolutionary type of graffiti, because you're kind of subverting this, this feature of capitalism. And then there's also the ways that it's just wormed into everything else, like our social interactions. And so, you know, uh, for example, like we have mass culture now. When we listen to music, it's likely not coming from people that live right near us. It used to be that music was something that we did together. We would, we would all sit in a room together and we would listen to, you know, a few people play an instrument and people might join in singing. You get some of that with concerts now, but like that used to just be a thing that people did together for fun. And having more elements of basically like free, non-commodified, just enjoying life with other humans uh, and, and kind of like connecting yourself to your environment. So, you know, you're... You're actually a person in the world and not just a product and a brand to be exploited. Anything that you can do along those lines is is going to, in the long run, help us build towards a society where more, you know, so much of our lives isn't taken over by, you know, like kind of these corporate overlords. So those are kind of the core ideas of the situationists. Uh, if you're interested in reading more, there is a book called uh, Psychogeography by Merlin Coverley, which kind of gives a brief run through of sort of the, the main ideas of, of that element of the situationists. I mentioned Lipstick Traces, but I also really like, I don't know that he goes into the situationists as much, but um, John Higgs is a writer from Britain who covers all sorts of stuff that's like along these lines. The best book I know of that he has that kind of goes through, it goes through Dada and kind of like, you know, this Rejection of, you know, kind of traditional society uh, is a book called Stranger Than We Can Imagine, which is a history of the 20th century. Um, he also talks, he has an amazing book about, there was a band in the in Britain in the 80s and 90s called the KLF, and uh, they, uh, they're, they're most famous for taking a suitcase full of money and burning it. Um, which, you know, uh, it's, it's, so the book's called KLF chaos, money, magic, and the band that burnt uh, a million pounds. And, um, they, uh, that's a really interesting one because Higgs goes deep into Dada and surrealism and, and a little bit into kind of like situationist type ideas for, for that book too. Um, so those are ones that I really like. Uh, otherwise, you know, um, the work of Alan Moore, uh, heavily draws on the situationists and, uh, any engagement with, with kind of the street art movement, um, in particular, uh, is, is, a is going to eventually touch you back on, on, you know, sort of this group. Um, I would suggest reading the society of the spectacle. The writers in the situationists were insanely dense and they also, the problem with reading a lot of Marxist stuff is that Marxists need you to have a degree in Marxism before you can even crack open one of their books. And so they kind of reference a lot of Marx's theories and that makes it hard <laughs> to follow if you're not, you know, yeah, if, if, if that's not traditionally something that you have, like, much experience with. So I would say Society of the Spectacle is worth giving a try. It's a super hard read. Uh, a lot of the Situationist stuff is very dense and, and, you know, it's very French. I don't mean that as an insult. It's a specific style. 
I've just noticed when it comes to French radical or academic stuff, it is like, you know, it, it is, it can be so boring. It's the stuff that they're writing about is so interesting and they could not express it in a more boring way. That's not just French. Noam Chomsky does that too. Sorry. This is, this is not the correct aside for right now, but, um, I don't want to re-record it, so I'm not going to. Um, thank you, guys. That's all for this week. Uh, I can definitely talk more about the Situationists. I do have a psychogeography reading list, which I'll link to in this article, um, where you can check out some of the books that qualify as a psychogeography. Um, and uh, it's also affiliate links, so if you buy through there, it gives me a small kickback, which is hugely helpful to me. Um, and I'll also do links to Lipstick Traces, Stranger Than We Can Imagine in the KLF. Uh, but thank you. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. If you know anyone who would be interested in this sort of thing, please tell them about it. We live and die by recommendations. Uh, and consider becoming a paid subscriber. It's only 5 bucks a month or $50 a year, which is super cheap. And I'm going to be doing more and more and more because uh, this is fun and I like doing it. So uh, I will talk to you guys next week. I hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>